0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, April 21st, 2022. I'm John Podhorts, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi Abe. Hi John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi Noah. Hi John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi Christine. Hi John. Okay, guys, we have literally not talked about what we're going to talk about. I thought maybe we would just have do this podcast as a as an example of how Ah, uh, completely uh, unprepared we are for when we do podcasts in general. We sort of talk for a couple of minutes beforehand, and then we decide what we're going to talk about. And then half the time we don't even get to the topics that we're thinking of talking about. That's how organized we are. So, uh, guys, what what should we talk about today? Think of it like the Jack Benny Show or so one of those shows about like what goes on behind the scenes. At a show, we are now behind the scenes at the Commentary Magazine podcast. What should we talk about on the podcast today? I I ask. What do we got going
1: right. on? Mariopol or uh Mariopol?
0: Okay, that's a that's or the that's a,
1: uh, the 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 revelations in the book about Kevin McCarthy and uh, Mitch right. McConnell.
0: Right, the Trump book, January by, 6th. Yeah, by Ale- by Alexander Burns and Jonathan Martin. Right. Okay, so we got the we got the revelations. We got Mariopol. Noah, what do you got?
2: I got nothing. You got nothing. But <laughs> I Noah's, Noah was up, up all night. So I, I uh, started prepping when you said, hi, Noah.
0: Uh, yeah, there we go. See, that, that's really well. we have. Of course, we have, though, uh, people are complaining to us that we're talking too much about it. We have, of course, the Justice Department announcing after 48 hours that they are going to sue to overturn the uh, the judge's decision in Florida on the mask mandate. Pretty much for the reason that the CDC needs to keep its powder dry. They basically have explicitly said they're doing this so that they can retain their authority to do something like this later, which is an interesting, which brings an interesting spin to the proceedings. Christine, That's do you have one. anything? Hang on, I'm reading the about?
2: New York Times right now on the, this. Uh, we spent one point nine trillion dollars and all we got was this lousy Republican majority. It's actually, <laughs> a pretty interesting article. Okay, well, we should. uh, If Biden's plan is like a new deal, why don't voters care?
3: Yes, I actually was. I was going to add there. there is this deep frustration among Democrats right now, which is kind of fascinating about how and and Biden himself has expressed it with exasperation. You know, why aren't you giving me credit for all this money I've spent? And the 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 argument, the, the, the New York Times argument seems to be. It's true. We need to spend a lot more time talking about all the money we're spending, and Elizabeth Warren had an, had an op-ed. I, of course, am obsessed with misinformation and the fact that former President Barack Obama is going to give yet another talk about it this week, and I'm kind of uh, very concerned about how much the Democratic Party infrastructure is is uh, convening around this idea that opinions they don't like are the same thing as misinformation, but it's, that's it's, just been in my head for a while.
0: <laughs> that that is really bad, and I'm I'm with you on that. I I I was on MSNBC the other day, uh, first time in a very long time. I was on Meet the Press daily. Uh, they asked me to go on at sort of the last minute. I'm I'm in my office. I'm doing it by Zoom. It's me. Uh, Garrett Hake is the sub substitute host for uh for Chuck Todd and Yimishal Cinder and. One other person, I can't remember who. And the conversation was entirely about how don't they need to revive, build back better? You know, what Joe Man, people in the White House are really mad at Joe Manchin. Uh, there is so much they need a legislative agenda. Elizabeth Warren's op ed that you referenced, Christine, which had been in the Times that day about how if we don't have a positive agenda where we pass a lot of things this year, we are going to lose a lot of seats. And uh, it, it finally came to me and I said, I feel like I'm living in Groundhog Day. I think I had this exact same conversation on this exact same network six months ago and eight months ago. I mean, I, 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 with, with maybe the tenses changed a little bit because Build Back Better hadn't yet been, hadn't been conclusively killed off yet. Nothing is changing in the Democratic perspective, the Democratic Party, and I would say the media, the liberal media's perspective, on Joe Biden's troubles and what is needed to uh, over overcome them. And the word that I'm not hearing and what anybody is saying here is inflation, which is the only thing the American people care about, inflation, crime, and Ukraine, as far as we can tell. And you're all talking about 2021 political controversies. And if I'm Mitch McConnell, I'm sitting back in my chair whistling a happy tune because this is exactly what I need to take four or five seats away from Democrats in November is for Democrats to stand around in 2022 talking about how they really should have done things differently in 2021 or what they really need to do is pass a lot of liberal spending in 2022. Um, And I I do think that, I I mean, I understand they're in a very difficult spot and they go to the answers that are ready to hand and that
2: they agree with, but um, Holy cow. Back to this New York Times report to the extent it even talks about inflation. It says Republicans and some economists say blame the the the, the early inflate the early COVID relief, the $1.9 trillion package for contributing to inflation. However, later on in the piece, the rescue spending still represents something of an insurance policy against a new recession. No, it doesn't. I mean, but no, it's, but that's it's great. The, it's why we have to have the a wish... recession. It's contributing it's a wish to build to a dream session. on.
0: <laughs> but but this is what I mean about McConnell whistling a happy tune. So they they do things and then their echo chamber says, yeah, you really need to do things like this. It's really. And, you know, don't worry about that other stuff that that the polls tell you everybody cares about. Because you need to do what you need to do, what's good for you. You need to advocate for yourself and your own interests and your own goals. Because if you're not going to advocate for yourself, who is going to advocate
3: for you? Okay, but I I disagree. I think they are actually schizophrenic about what their message is. Because there was another piece in the Times today that basically said, was hand-wringing, fear-mongering, oh my word, why aren't aren't Democrats running on democracy and fears about the democracy? Because we all know all the Democrats who are the best people are really concerned about democracy, but it's Republicans who are talking about voting and procedural stuff. In that piece, they said, you know, hand wringing about the fact that nobody's concerned enough for democracy. They said instead, Democrats are focusing on bread and butter issues like inflation. I'm like, no, they're not doing that either. Like, what are you talking about? Who is saying this stuff?
1: But I think it's all of a piece in that the the political strategy, such as it is, mirrors the 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 ideology coming out of the party. In that, it's all about telling people what to think don't think you're you're focusing on the wrong issues focus on the great job we're doing spending <laughs> i mean you know my obsession with comparing
0: everything to the 1970s i got to i got to compare this again to the 1970s because it is like the american people are saying things like we're really worried about crime and the kind of liberal establishment of the day is like no you're not you're really not i mean and what's more not only shouldn't you be you should really care about police corruption and overcrowding in prisons and the rights of prisoners that's what you should really care about and you don't really care about that and you know i, I don't really i don't worry about that that other stuff because this is what you should care about and then they're hit by uh you know by, you know by an
3: avalanche but I think it's even worse. They don't say you're you don't care about that. What they say is this isn't the problem you think it is. It's much more condescending. It's crime actually isn't as bad as you think to people who are living in neighborhoods that are, where their friends and family members are getting carjacked and robbed at gunpoint on the regular in a way they weren't 5 years ago. So they're even it's even more of a kind of gaslighting, the kind of gaslighting they decry when it when it comes from the other side. See,
0: I'm not even sure in the 70s that it was gaslighting per se. It really was we're 10 years into the great society. We're 10 years into this great liberal experiment. Your, your, your concerns are ill-founded. Things are going to work out. That's what progressivism promises. And, um, you know, I understand there are growing pains, like busing is hard. Like, I understand why you don't want your kids to go to another But, you know, we, we have bigger fish to fry in this country. We are, we are ending, you know, racism and poverty. And we're, and we're we're using your children as chess pieces on a grand chess board and um you should just be okay with that and if you're not well you're just gonna have to go along with the program like i it was much less was more ingenuous in the 70s than it is now in some weird sense
2: because I'll i think you, they really I'll, I'll give you a perfect yeah. example of this a little lighthearted, but it's It's really illustrative of this kind of gaslighting impulse from PolitiFact. You might have seen a clip of President Joe Biden, quote, shaking hands with the air, with thin air. It never happened. Here's the truth, as well as how misinformation, misinformers manufacture and embellish embarrassing presidential moments. And it subsequently goes to war with the entire universe. YouTube, Senator Cruz, Snoop Dogg, Saturday Night Live, half a dozen others who have all internalized this false notion of what happened because they saw it happen with their own eyes. It's in video. It's right there. Go Google it.
0: I, you just are
2: not properly educated about the context. It hasn't I been contextualized out of existence.
0: I watched that clip five times, and I recall actually we discussed it on the podcast. I know, I was saying, I actually thought he was said, gesturing, yeah. but Yeah, that he was gesturing. So I went back and I watched it another three times. And he turned around and he had his hand out. He had four fingers pointing, you know, uh, in per, at a perpendicular angle that, to his thumb with his <laughs> arm stretched out. He wasn't pointing. He wasn't looking. He had his arm stretched out in the universal handshake position. And he didn't drop it when, as he turned, there was no one there. He kind of, shifted a bit to the right with the hand still up and then he moved a couple of paces to the right and then he moved and it was i'm pr- i am always willing to say
2: that these he's actually pointing clips, at the audience behind him with his whole hand when you point in a direction don't you use your entire open hand palm like out
0: particularly you know <laughs> yeah pr- particularly when you're you know trying to shake someone's hand who's not there while you're pointing i mean this is I'm like just saying like i'm willing to believe that that youtube clips and these things have are, are often doctored or fa- they are and and it's where it is worth keeping your powder dry and making sure that what you're seeing is what you're being told you're seeing so i like studied this clip and the politifact report on its falsity is jaw-dropping i mean it, we are back in the if the CDC has lost all of its credibility as a as a manager of our public health crisis, PolitiFact has lost all its credibility as a manager of our misinformation crisis. This was a presumption that was made. They did a report based on something because they wanted to say that this had been uh, misapplied or this wasn't fair and the facts don't bear it out and they don't care about the facts.
2: It's like saying Kofefe had a meaning um but which, okay which so, donald yeah. trump did not by the way donald trump laughed it off it was like a, everybody knows right. the true meaning of Kafifi. but his entire coterie had right. to make this into some sort of a deliberate action it was the weirdest stalinist moment of his presidency and yeah it's become a thing across the across the political spectrum that the boss is always right so uh
0: maybe we can transition from from this to trump uh this um a weird article in the new york times that is a report by the authors of a book on their own book it's alexander burns and jonathan martin writing an article about the findings in their own book it's like not an excerpt from the book it's not a report by somebody else on what they found in their book which is what you would ordinarily have it as their byline uh, about how what their book Fines and the big and the big news break. And it which and it doesn't is that,
1: say from our book, it says in a new book. Right. Which strange. is which is
0: very odd anyway. Um, so uh, they got uh, they got McConnell and uh, and uh, Kevin McCarthy basically saying between uh, J- January 6th and January 10th of, of 2021 that um, they're through with Trump. Trump is finished. Uh, mcconnell is hopeful that trump will be impeached according to this uh mccarthy says he wants to see the backside of him and he hates him and blah, blah 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 and then i guess the polling starts to come in and the reports come in from the field uh about republican voters and how they feel about this and they ditched it right i mean they they basically decided that this was not on and that they were going to have to either drop their criticism or even openly defend Trump or whatever. And McCarthy basically thought, uh, having said I've had it with this guy, that you know. But a month later, he was going and you know kneeling and kissing the ring and you know surrendering his testicles to Donald Trump in pursuit of you know the in the maybe one of the grossest pursuits of power I think we've ever seen. Um, he's a very very, it's an very unfortunate person to be a major American political leader, somebody who is a person of this little character. But here we are. So what do we, what do we, what do we make of this? Don't everybody, don't everybody talk at once.
1: It's just a massive (laughs) failure of leadership that kind of mirrors um, what's happened among Democrats uh, when they sort of have these little moments where they make noises about how they're going to put down the, the far left members of their, of their party and then don't. And then back off, rally around them, incorporate their craziness in, in other forms. I mean,
0: according to this piece, McConnell said, if this isn't impeachable, I don't know what is. And he said, the Democrats are going to take care of the son of a bitch for us, he said. And then he voted not to convict them a week later or two weeks later or whenever it was
2: Uh, like
0: what really, honestly, that's um, there's some denials, but I mean, the sourcing seems to be pretty hard on the McConnell front because one of the People who was at lunch with McConnell, it says they named the two people who must have been the sources for the anecdote, one of them being Scott Jennings, his closest political advisor. Um, listen, I mean, the Republicans have made a huge mistake, I believe. I mean, they made a huge political, short-term political mistake or long-term political mistake, not, not going for conviction in the Senate because um yeah if they'd convicted him he couldn't run for office again and that really would have put him in the rearview mirror and now he's not in the rearview mirror and they they might have suffered short-term pain in the form of you know even even the majority of Republicans saying that you know Trump was railroaded doesn't matter he would still have been technically off that's it like he can't Be president again, and then the Republican Party would inexorably have moved on. And instead, here they are; they all have to reckon with him. They all have to start calculating whether they need his endorsement. They don't need his endorsement. If they say something, he maybe he'll put a primary challenger up next to you know, and uh, and like that. So,
3: can I can I just jump in and say that part that lack of leadership is, and I I think that's exactly uh, Abe's exactly right about that is going to haunt them going forward for years to come, in part because even though I think a lot of them and a lot of Republican voters would like to move beyond the Trump era and just get this guy out of the way and not dwell on the past, they're going to be forced by their own choices in that moment to revisit it, and they should be. They should be held accountable for the choices they made if they were elected officials. There was just, Trump just sat down for an interview with Pierce Morgan, and it was like, it really was, I saw clips of it, I couldn't watch the whole thing, but it was just painful. I mean, this guy in denial, about what happened, insisting that he's right, insisting that, you know, this is all going to be continue to be litigated and the people are going to decide. It's it's just absolutely delusional. So that if you want more of that, then then the reckoning that I think some of these Republican leaders need to have, uh, that's what you're going to get. Well,
1: they've and they've also the in- I'm sorry. They've, I just want to say quickly, they've, they've also bought themselves sort of a career look uh, to look forward to of not being able to speak in plain English about. <clears throat> this extraordinary event you know it's like when whenever whenever um people like uh, mccarthy are asked directly how they now feel about january 6th they can't say you know uh they have to sort of say uh it was an unfortunate event um you know joe biden is the president you know it, but they can't actually come at it it's a crazy McCarthy thing blames the
0: capitol police he yeah. says that Nancy Pelosi runs the Capitol police. So it's Nancy Pelosi and the Capitol police's fault. I mean, you know, that's just contemptible. If he, you know, he's probably going to be the speaker and the Capitol police are then going to report to him and he will basically have, I mean, he'll say it's their leadership, but you know, like, you know, saying untrue things when you said one, the thing of saying one thing in private and doing something else in public there's almost no way to defend that. I mean, there's no, there's no way to sort of recover from that as a sort of public Look, McConnell is a brilliant political player. He's the most brilliant political player we've seen in Washington, pretty, pretty, maybe in, in the last 30 years, maybe aside from Clinton, who, you know, do, bobbed and weaved his way out of trouble that he himself created. McConnell's an extraordinary political player and he, and he his you know, the thing is, if his heart is in the right place and he and he, so he's the leader and so he can't he says somewhere like, I didn't get to be the leader if only five people follow me. Meaning if he voted to convict and only five other Republicans joined him instead of the, you know, I don't know we you've needed, 16 to join him to convict and and thereby, you know, impeach and convict Trump. Um, yeah, he, he wouldn't be. But uh, he's not just the leader. That's not the position he was elected to. That is something that he was chosen to be by the other senators in his caucus. It's not his most important job being the leader. It's not the job that the people of Kentucky voted him in to do. And maybe they would be at it. Maybe he could say, I can't do this because the people of Kentucky don't want me to do it. That would be one Way of handling it. But for him to say on, you know, January 10th, this guy needs to go. The Democrats are going to get rid of him for us. And, you know, that will be fantastic. And then not to vote to convict, it just calls into question his manhood. I don't I mean, I don't even know what to call it. Like manhood may not be the right term because that would obviously, you know, Liz Cheney showed a lot of manhood. (laughs) in that sense so it doesn't mean anything to call it manhood I just mean like character like sometimes you're called upon to do things that are going to be really unpopular or, or or gonna or gonna make you unpopular and and uh, and gonna anger people and maybe threaten maybe make your life uncomfortable for a couple of months um and as I say maybe the thing is there's gonna be McConnell what's gonna happen in 2024 when there's, say, somebody that he would really like to be president that isn't Trump. Let's say he wants DeSantis or he'd really like Hawley. I mean, I don't even know who, you know, Hawley.
2: I don't think he would want Hawley. Well, but, I suppose you know, the thought process is that at least he's still around in 2024 to advocate for one position or another, <clears throat> take have some political authority because that would be destroyed in the if he were to lose a primary challenge. I mean, you can always convince yourself of that. You're so invaluable and necessary that you have to make compromises because the guy coming up, a guy or a woman coming up behind you is going to be worse.
0: But he. Um, hold on a second. They've always he's wanted acts of he's nature. He's not up in 2022. I think he's up in 24, isn't he?
2: Right. He's up in 24 and he's going right.
0: to be 83 years old.
2: That doesn't mean anything. That's that's spring chicken territory. <laughs> <in the> Senate. <laughs>
0: that that's by the way there's a story that kind of died on the vine uh in an interesting way which is diane feinstein's staff basically saying she's um she's senile and can no longer can no longer hold office
3: they've been doing that for a couple of years though those little leaks to the media yeah Yeah, there there were leaks but this was like a
0: big open story that she is and and uh obviously there's no recourse in some fundamental sense i mean i guess she could be I mean, I I don't know what the rules are for expulsion from the Senate on the basis of, I mean, usually that's turpitude or, you know, criminality or something like that. But um, but
3: now that we live, now that we're ruled by a gerontocracy, we probably should start rethinking some of the rules of elected officials in terms of competence and fitness for office and they should have some procedure for, for doing that. I mean, Strom Thurmond had the same problem, right? His staff basically yeah. ran his office for, for years when he I mean, was I think, completely. I think there have been a
0: lot of people like that who yes. are in that position. And, but the weird thing about that is like all such rules, they have to be voted in by the very people whose power they would limit or whose future they would question. And
3: who are pushing 80 themselves in many right. cases.
0: So the only way that happens is if there are some gigantic scandal involving Somebody's use of power when they when they are non mentis that then so frightens everybody that they run to one side and vote for it in an effort to not be blamed or you know not you know because they need to virtue signal in that way and obviously Dianne Feinstein doesn't have that kind of power and authority to do much of anything that's why this stuff maybe doesn't happen quite the way that it should uh, one thing that should happen is that you should really think about life insurance. Uh, Because look, if there's someone relying on your financial support, child, aging parent, business partner, what are you gonna do if the worst happens? What's gonna happen to them? Life insurance can give you peace of mind if something happens to you. Your loved ones will have a financial cushion for rent or mortgage payments, loans, education costs, everyday expenses, And having life insurance through your job may not be enough. Most people need up to 10 times more coverage to properly provide for their families. Typically, life insurance gets more expensive as you age, so it's smart to get a policy sooner rather than later. Policy Genius is your one-stop shop to find the insurance you need at the right price. Click the link in the description or head to policygenius.com and answer a few questions. In minutes, you can compare personalized quotes from top companies to find your lowest price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. The team of licensed experts at Policy Genius are on hand through the entire process to help you understand your options and make decisions with confidence. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies, whether you're just starting to shop or have questions about your active policy they're your independent advocate's offering unbiased advice. No extra fees, won't sell your info to third parties, thousands of five-star reviews, and options that offer coverage in as little as a week, and avoiding unnecessary medical exams. 30 million people have shopped for insurance, through Policy Genius and placed over $120 billion in coverage. So head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. Uh, can, we,
2: can we briefly go back to the Democrats yes. uh, gaslighting you into, yes. <clears throat> into not voting in November? That seems to be their only strategy. <clears throat> yes. My congressman, Tom Malinowski, was a second term congressman in a red district, picked up the seat in 2018 in the Democratic wave. Won re-election in 2020, narrowly. Uh, My district has been redistricted to the point that it's a little bit redder than it used to be. Still a swing district, um, but it was traditionally a Republican district, and it's become more Republican. So it's most likely he's going to lose, but not impossible in a good environment. And he hasn't been a terrible congressman for this district. He's got some built-in advantages. So he pushes out this thread on Twitter where he talks about education, education issues in the state. And one of the pieces there, he says, instead of calming things down as any responsible leader would do, he, talking about his opponent, Tom Keene, son of uh, former Governor Keene, um, he would stir Prince up Kane, anger. Kane, actually. Kane. Yeah. Keene Kane. He was actually the president of my college when I went to Drew University. Um, so I've been mispronouncing his name, I guess, for 20 years. I think years.
0: it's Kane. Am I wrong?
2: I don't remember, honestly. Only met oh my him God, once.
0: That, that, this could be a brain. This could be like a, uh, you know. A, K- a, I always br- pronounce it, but it
2: really doesn't matter. Yeah. Anyway, um, the last thing that the last thing our divided country needs is more of this right now. And it's accompanied by a cartoon. And the cartoon features an NJ, NJ GOP. It's a Republican elephant holding up a sign that says NJ sex standards. And then the character is saying this problem I invented is making me angry. They just made it up. Democrats in the state to the extent he has any contact with the state are freaking out about a sex education curriculum that is being imposed on the state from Trenton. Um, It institutes implements sex education for second graders and up. It's nothing we can do about it at the local level. It comes from Trenton. You'll lose your funding if you don't do it. So we we've actually investigated this and there's nothing you can do about it unless you run for government and Democrats in the state are, are, trying to do their best to offset genuine anger about this. There's Democratic members. Democratic member from Monmouth is introducing legislation that says, oh, the curriculum has to be posted on the website 14 days before the start of the school year. Uh, the Democratic governor, Phil Murphy, calls for an immediate conduct to, to, to uh, immediately conduct a thorough review of the curriculum so that age appropriate lessons are being taught to children. They're taking this quite seriously because it is quite serious. This is something that is erupting across the country at a grassroots level as a real wedge issue ahead of November. And his his strategy here, Representative Milanowski's strategy, is to pretend it doesn't exist. And when you say it exists, is to call you a liar and a kook.
0: Okay, so basically this right, so this is this is the intellectual gaslighting of our time, right? It's like this: uh, there is a there is a public, uh, there is a sort of a, a, a revolution in consciousness toward the idea that uh, transgenderism is not only uh, okay for people who are incredibly, who are suffering incredibly and have the money and, you know, have exhausted all other avenues and all of that and, and, and think that this is going to help them and it's not our business. They do it and that's how it's going to be. And let's hope that all, everything goes well for them too. transgenderism is a, is an expression of a truth of human nature, which is that gender is not determined by your, uh, by your chromosomes and that uh, it's something you can choose or you there's whatever mind body duality. Is so extreme that your, your, your mind knows that you're, you're female when your body says you're male, even at a very early age, like two or three, and we need to facilitate this. This all comes from one side of the political ledger. So they start advocating for this. I would call it propagandizing, but if we take the, if we try to drain words of their emotional meaning, they start to advocate for it. They published articles about it. They, you know, they, they go to medical conferences and praise efforts. They talk about the drugs that can be used to help stimulate counter sex hormones in the body and all of that. And then six or seven years later, as, as that just like filters down into pop culture, into everywhere else, and then people start waking up to what's going on. Then they say, "What are you freaking out about? You're making this issue up after ten years of basically very—I wouldn't call it careful—because I would assume that there were, the agenda was present at the at the outset. But sort of ten years of laying the groundwork for a kind of blanket acceptance of." Transgenderism—that means that children and and adolescents can remove body parts or change the hormonal composition of their bodies uh, out of an expressed belief that they are the wrong, that they that they possess the wrong sex, and that their bodies need to be brought in harmony with their ideas. And people go, "Whoa, wait a minute!" Like people have been on this planet for. Millions of years and we have, you know, XY chromosomes and XX chromosomes. And this is I don't want my kid. I don't want kids being told that they can chop off body parts and all of that. And then it's like, what are you
3: freaking out about? where well, are you? And there's another component to this, too, because what they have very uh, effectively tried to do most recently is to make this about LGBTQ issues. So there's 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 much broader acceptance of gay and lesbian couples and adoption and marriage, all this stuff in the country, which is a good thing um, in recent history. So what the transgender and very radical transgender ideologists want to say is anytime you start to question their ideology and and the hormone blockers and the, you know, men competing in women's sports, they say you're anti, you're homophobic. This is homophobic. But what they have in fact done is, is kind of staged a coup on the, on the LGBTQ movement, taken it over. And in some places in the UK, totally taken it over so that like old fashioned lesbians have had to form their own new groups because they've been pushed out by transgender activists of their their uh, previous groups. They have taken that message, which is a, which is one most people in this country share, right? There's a lot of tolerance now, which is a good thing. They're, they're kind of uh, dining out on that tolerance to, to make people afraid of talking about the transgender issues, which are separate. This is a different right. issue, but they're trying to collapse it all into one thing. And this was the, this whole libs of TikTok uh, scandal that broke out that that's what they did. They said, if you are, um, you know, attacking uh, LGBTQ teachers who are talking about transgenderism, you're anti-gay. Well, that's not what this was about. This is separate from from that sort of tolerance, but they're but they're using it. To right. their advantage. And
0: then let's go to let's go to let's go to sort of critical race theory. So, um, you know, 30 years, uh, 32, 33 years since Kimberly Crenshaw sort of invented or wrote the first articles on intersectionality, and Derek Bell started spelling out critical race theory. Black Lives Matter happens. George Floyd is killed. There's a sort of national spasm of concern about, you know, the how deep racism goes in the American psyche. And off the shelf immediately come curricula, uh, diversity groups, um, schools hiring people, corporations hiring people, new policies, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and then... Uh, the blowback comes and people say, you know, they're, they're imposing critical race theory in our schools, on our children. They're imposing this idea that America is at root evil and that everything unknowingly or knowingly is forged by racism. The response to which is, but critical race theory is only an academic theory. Nobody's teaching critical race theory, by which I think they mean Nobody is saying. In 1991, Derek Bell wrote this Harvard Law Review article that said X, Y, and Z. And here were here were some of the responses by other law professors. And what is the way in which critical race theory functions as a legal, formal legal doctrine, and all of that? But I mean, of course, they're teaching critical race theory. I mean, everything yes. that or they is say being taught emanates from critical race theory, and they and this is this was the gaslight you're they saying it about race
1: or the or the or or they 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 say in defense all we're teaching is is that there is there has been slavery and and and, uh, and a history of racism in this country that's all you don't want your kids to learn that i just want to add by the way that i think we have not yet begun to see the real blowback to the trans stuff and i think when it hits and i have no idea when it's going to be um but possibly when a lot of these kids who have been the victims of this movement um get older and are in a a state of god knows what kind of crisis um and i think there's going to be a blowback against this that is going to make the defund blowback and the crt blowback look like footnotes
2: Probably because it's easier to understand, and that's part of the problem. When I <clears throat> when I was writing my first book on social justice, you get a lot of um, pushback on the intersectionality stuff, in particular, because it's not like it's hard hard to comprehend. The idea of overlapping inter- you know, intersecting prejudices that are doled out in degrees based on American history—it's very jingoistic. It forces you to think in stereotypes, and it's if you comprehend stereotypes, you get the philosophy. But if you're if you're critical of it, you don't understand it. If you're reverential towards it, then you get it, but you couldn't possibly understand it if you're critical of it. And that's where the gaslighting comes in because then they say, yes, of course, obviously, nobody's assigning Derek Bell or Kimberly Williams to say, it's not on the second grade syllabus, but it informs the pedagogy. And then the pedagogy, as you understand this theory, shows up in in curricula designed for a second grader to digest it. And that's the sort of thing that you can recognize when you understand what you're reading and it's not hard, but they convince themselves it's so complicated. It's so it's 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 such a hypothetical that you need, you know, a, a PhD to know what you're looking at. And if you don't but have don't one, you couldn't possibly could... understand what you're talking about. Now I'm gonna
0: reverse field with you because I often think that you give people more credit than they deserve and that they're being more honest than they are. I think I think most of the people who play this gaslighting game on these issues know perfectly well what they're doing. Because And they think they have, a, they have a greater truth in mind. Their greater truth is, if you object to what we're doing, you're a racist, and therefore you deserve no benefit of the doubt of, as to the honesty of your position. And I can say whatever I want to say to put you down, because in overarching terms, you're a monster, you believe monstrous things, you're terrible, we're trying to save everybody... And uh, as I say, not only don't you deserve the benefit of the debt, you deserve to be slandered. You deserve to be libeled because you are, in fact, a slanderer and libeler yourself about the entirety of the African-American experience or the transgender experience or whatever. And so it's OK to go, what? We're not doing that. We're not doing that. What are you talking about? It's like Nurse Ratchet. It's like, no, I'm not giving you. I'm not. You're not having electroshock treatments. What are you talking about? just take your medication. Take your medication, Randall, or I'll strap you to a chair and I'll give you electroshock. You know, I mean, it has that, it's that quality. It's like, it's like, you know, barbarism of the human face. It's sort of the smiling face of, we're just trying to create a more just kind, notable, you know, free and and, and loving society. You know, and you don't like it and we're going to kill you for it. We're going to deny you your jobs and we're going to dox you. We're going to publish your address publicly so that we're going to call SWAT teams on you. Like, we'll do whatever we have to do to make sure that everything is wonderful in the future and that you're just standing in the way of our utopia. I mean, that's the quality of it. And, of course, they are uniquely, they believe this to be a good strategy, because it works so well with the people that they are in immediate proximity to, it works so well with the Harvard administrators. It works so well with private school administrators. It works so well with with officials in in in, in blue states who share their presumptions and all of that.
3: Well, and there it also worked the, the the very early iteration of it in the 90s during the PC wars on campuses gave them a taste of victory because they kind of won those wars. Right. I mean, the pushback was necessary and it it did bring to the attention of people who otherwise weren't aware of it, particularly with regard to free speech uh, issues on campus. That was an important thing. And the pushback that conservatives did on that remains very important. But they knew they won. They won that institutional battle. And this is the next front in a longer war. And I think that they they aren't getting the pushback. It's very easy to demonize the opponents on the other side now because they have more tools at their disposal, mainly social media, the Internet, to expand on that and 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 it's captured and everybody can play the game now it's not limited just to campuses it's global and lots of people like getting in on the game of of pointing um and shaming others for their for their supposed moral lapses
0: i mean i don't know i think abe is right and the problem is that these things come out in weird ways like i i could make an argument that trump's rise in 2016 among the never voting you know, uh, rural whites who didn't graduate from high school and all of that had was itself based, it had some root based in 30 years of the idea that um, white people were privileged and that society needed to reorient itself to give a preferential option in some fashion or other to the less privileged people of other colors, uh, immigrants, uh, people like that. And you had this sort of population of people who were sitting there for 30 years and finally somebody basically spoke their language and said enough you know what you're a victim you're a victim of all of this you're not getting they're getting benefits and you're not getting them they're getting they're getting free stuff and you're not getting free stuff and that had a epical effect on American politics I mean again this is you can't say that this is what got Trump elected that's silly I mean it's a but it's an element of something, which is I'm tired of being told that I'm I'm bad and I'm part of something bad. I'm st- I'm struggling here. I'm not you know, I, my salary hasn't gone up in 10 years. Uh, everybody around me is on fentanyl. You know, I I'm I'm tempted to take fentanyl. My son just had an overdose and I had to you know, they had to give him Narcan to get him out of. A, and you're telling me that this society is uniquely designed to privilege me where am I privileged and that's the problem with this kind of logic is the blowback comes but you don't know where it's going to come from I mean that's I think when Abe says there's going to be blowback on trans stuff that doesn't mean it's going to be enough is enough you know it's going to be like a speech where someone says now we're really going to get back in a Sort of like the end of Judgment at Nuremberg, where the Nazi guy stands up and says, yes, we did something terrible and we deserve our punishment. Like, that's not how it's going to happen. Well, I mean, it comes in corkscrew not. ways,
2: but there's always weird an event. things happen. There always there is always an event that that makes it safe. I agree. But this but the, but the event is never
0: what you think it's going to be. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's not it's not going to be. I was trans and I, this terrible thing happened to me and now I'm going to go, you know, and then I have a movement coming and, you know, he's a, it's a war hero who was also a this. And a th- you know, like it's not going to be anything easy. It's going to be hard. It's going to make it, it's going to be ugly. And a lot of it's going to be ugly. And the, counterpunch is going to be that this is the end of civilization as we know it, because this authoritarian movement to deny people their trans rights or whatever is coming and where it's monstrous and all of that. But if it comes, it comes. I mean, maybe we saw some sign of it in the Yunkin, you know, I mean, sort of like where it creeps up on people and nobody knows there's going to be a 13 point shift in a, in a, in a vote in Virginia or in, or in New Jersey. Um, where it's like, okay, enough with the COVID fascism, you know, or, or, and, and, and and the CRT and all of that.
3: But the broader cultural change, particularly on the trans movement, I think will be a long time coming because it's going to take people telling their stories of detransition, people telling parents, telling their stories of their kids, mental health crises that emerge later, which they thought was this gender dysphoria and they treated aggressively. And it turns out that made the problem worse. They're going to be terrible, heartbreaking stories. And the accumulation of the telling of those stories is going to shift the tide, I believe, because I think this this is this is truly a, and I really do think that a lot of the policies that that particularly the medical establishment, is embracing uh, gleefully will be seen to be abusive and by, by our well, uh, future generations.
1: To bring up uh, one floor of the cuckoo's nest again, it's going to be like uh, lobotomies, right? In the public perception, except that it's going to be a much greater number of victims who were young, and uh, and there was and there will we will be able to look back on a record of this massive public political campaign to enforce it.
0: That is a very good analogy, actually, if you think about it, because lobotomies were, of course, you know, which is the conclusion, the conclusion of one full of the cuckoo's nest is Randall McMurphy gets a lobotomy having tra- having Engineered himself a transfer to a mental hospital to as a a cushy way of getting uh, finishing his prison stay. And then he ends up lobotomized at the end of the at the end of the book and at the end of the movie. And lobotomies were a grand liberal gesture toward easing pain in the 1930s and 1940s. The idea was- Kennedy's
3: did it to one of their daughters. Yeah, Rosemary Kennedy was
0: lobotomized. Um, I mean, uh, uh, Tennessee Williams' sister was lobotomized. I mean, people were lobotomized. And the idea was, we need to ease their suffering, ease their pain. This will make them less violent. This will make them more placid. They will be happier. Everything will be wonderful. And of course, it mostly turned people into vegetables. It was one of the most appalling, you know, it's one of this kind of a surgery for the purpose- of moral social and emotional improvement that was that we now look upon with absolute unmitigated horror. And, you know, I guess if, if we're right, that is what, that is what uh transition surgery is going to look like. You know, I don't know, I, uh, 30 years from now. Um, uh, I think lobotomy the results of lobotomy were so horrifying that, um, it, it was a little shorter term. Um, but of course, lobotomies were also imposed on on people, and not something that they supposedly chose. Right? There chose, was no though.
3: issue of well, there was no issue of consent, though. And I think with regard right. to the what's happening to some of these kids, the parents are making consent choices for children who later would never have given their own consent had, as adults, right. they had the choice. Right. And, and there's such a, we, there's a
1: whole yeah. system, you know, of the sort of all mental health uh, and sort of um, adolescent health systems and networks and the social workers involved are geared toward if not imposing this nudging families toward the decision right. that they want to see which is some sort of transition and right. to get and back is, to what,
3: that yeah. I was, yeah and to get back that that circles back to the libs of TikTok thing i was going to say exactly the piece the, yeah, the reason people were outraged at that is that there you had teachers people in positions who are, who are legally required to report abuse of children saying I will see I will help kids do this secretly if their parents don't support them. That is what enraged people. That is what enraged people. And there are there are people in positions of authority, unfortunately, who have embraced this as an ideological goal, as a moral calling, and they are doing this. That is what parents are fighting back against when they get angry at those things.
0: Right. Um, should we talk a little about the CDC? Uh, decision, uh, or the, the Justice Department's decision to accept the CDC's recommendation that they seek an overturning of the judicial ruling on on masking.
3: Can we just say blah? Ha, ha, ha. That's, that's really the only reaction if you're looking at this from a political standpoint. I mean, it does seem to be designed
0: to be the, see, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, that the CDC is saying we really need this so that we maintain this power in the future um that's a very open question about whether or not the cdc will ever be able to assert this power in the future whether a president whether 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 a sane presidency will ever will ever s- submit to the authority of the cdc to make nationwide rulings about individual human behavior
2: even during a pandemic that's given it's a very interesting question from a judicial perspective <clears throat> because the cdc was granted a broad sweeping authority by Congress at the outset of the pandemic, uh, the CDC, for example, interpreted that authority so broadly as to include whether or not you needed to pay your rent or your mortgage. Um, that was struck down by the Supreme Court as an over an, an excessive interpretation of the authority that was granted CDC. Now, masking mandates are only guidelines, right? CDC doesn't mandate anything; they only introduce guidelines to that effect. They don't have, you know, well, a transportation authority is where this authority derives from and they have that th- that power, but the Senate voted to uh, remove that power. Um, now it didn't become law. The pass- House didn't pass it and would have been vetoed by the president in the event. <clears throat> but Congress has demonstrated at least one chamber has demonstrated a willingness to withdraw this authority from CDC and TSA. Um, so I wonder if there's any consent here, if, if, if it's going to be adjudicated, whether that matters, whether, you know, the authority that was granted by Congress has been at least demonstrated uh, to this, to a certain extent to be um, past the point of relevance. You know what I mean? Would it, would a court take that into account because this authority derives from the legislature, But, but, but it wasn't the pandemic authority entirely. I mean, the,
0: the, the masking authority comes from a piece of legislation from 1944 in part, uh, according uh, according to uh, Judge Mazel, she said, "There is the Public Health Service Act of 1944, and the CDC exceeded its authority in using that as the means by which they imposed mask mandates." This is what one of the things that um, Adam, uh, Adam White said on our podcast the other day. That is arguable. That in other words, she makes she makes a good case. It's not a, you know, it's not a it's not an open and shut lead pipe cinch. Decision like that—that that is, it, there, there are arguments on both sides. She may have overreached in her finding, and the real question, I think, is: Are we about to head into? I, I mean, it's like ridiculous to keep saying, "Oh, the Democrats are in so much trouble," but so uh, the CDC is challenging this, right? And the and we we we're going to be in a position where until if there if the Justice Department is going to go at this, until there is a finding of a higher court. Right, which is the 11th circuit, which is, a, which is apparently a conser- thought, thought of as a conservative circuit. So you can judge that as you will. Uh, we're going to be in a position where certain places are going to say, yes, we're going to still enforce a mask mandate and uh, other places aren't. And it's not clear what the, what the uh, administration is going to do with this challenge or if, if they get a, an injunction to stay the finding that would then allow them to announce again that airlines have to have to impose mass mandates. And uh, the date certain was coming up on like May 3rd or something when they were going to either lift it or not lift it. Right. So now, of course, in theory, uh, they're going to act as though this is still within their power. Are they going to lift it on May 3rd? Are they going to insist on keeping their rule in place, uh, uh, you know, as part of their legal strategy? and, like, again, I mentioned the other day, like, New York, Penn Station, public transport, public transport in other places, Philadelphia, O'Hare Airport, you know, there, there are it, 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 there are places that are still going to insist on masking, and um, I, like, if I'm, I don't know, whoever is James Carville in 2022, I am pulling my hair out, because all this is going to do is prolong this. And only and maybe 20% of the population is going to say, I'm really happy that you're fighting this point. And everybody, mo- more people who care, it's just like more, you guys don't know what you're doing, and you go, you go too far, and you won't stop, and I don't want you being my, being my boss anymore. I mean, New York State is now talking about raising its threat level raising its threat level. You want to know what you want to know how many people in hospitals in New York City are in are hospitalized for COVID out of the number of hospital beds in New York City where people are hospitalized. Okay? 2.2% of the beds in New York City's hospitals are taken up by people who are COVID-19 patients. And again, we don't know if that's COVID with COVID-19 or because of COVID-19. So even if we assume that every one of those is just a COVID-19 patient, it's two per, 98% of the people in New York city hospitals are not there for COVID. And they're going to raise the threat level because case numbers are going up while hospitalizations are going down.
1: Am I taking crazy pills? There's a weird development and I don't know if it means nothing or if it, it's, it's indicative of, of some sort of change. Um, Today, the New York Times does not have the covid graph on its homepage.
2: Whoa. Which is wow. odd because cases are up over 50 percent from two weeks ago.
0: Yeah, but the death toll is probably down 50 percent. Yeah. Wow. That's the first time in two years.
2: Yeah, sometimes it's disappeared before, and there's like a. I'm it has? hesitant to think this is has it. it. I don't remember. I mean, I said and it could be nothing. Back, like this. This looks looks like a weird layout change to me, rather than a political decision. But it is it's relevant. Po- I don't know. I don't know. They had it
0: fixed, and it's not fixed, and now I'm looking at the. I don't know. It's very interesting. Um, I uh, I just think we're in a very weird. We're at a, we're in a weird place in which, uh it's like a kind of rear guard action uh, that is going on here uh, in relation to COVID and, and, and the, and the masking and all of that. And I just think it's catastrophic. You know, I, I I'm not even like upset about, it. I just think it's like a catastrophe for them. What are they doing? Why are they doing this? Why can't they just stop? It's been two years. People aren't going into hospitals, and people are dying less and less and less and less. Stop, stop before the public takes away every ounce of the power you think you're supposed to have in future. Uh, I don't know. And uh, may, okay, let's spend three minutes on Mariupol. I know this is bad that I just said we're going to spend three minutes on Mariupol, but we got to go. So, uh, interest. It's interesting. I mean, it is ve-
2: very. I don't know what to make of it. uh, The city has all but fallen with the exception of a very uh, like a plant, a a manufacturing plant that has it's like a maze. It's very well fortified. There's a lot of concrete, very deep tunnels. It's hard to take. And the defenders have been heroically holding out of this um, this position for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, It's they're. I don't know how they're still holding out. I don't know how they're being resupplied. I don't know how they have ammunition. I don't know how they have food. Um, but they're still holding out, and then apparently this uh, tactical decision was made um, to by the Russian advancing forces to halt the advance and just starve them out. Um, Mariupol uh, remains it's a very strategically important port on the Sea of Azov, and as long as it holds out, it ties up Russian forces uh, to uh, stopping them from completing this this attempt to encircle Ukrainian forces in the east, cut them off and then consolidate their gains in the East. Um, so it's complicating their plans again. And we've seen some indications that this, this new push in the East was ill-planned, logistically not supported properly, has been uh, producing a lot more casualties and lost equipment than we anticipated it would. It's all happening very similar to the drive on Kiev, And it reinforces the assumption here that Ukraine could win. They're really good, outright.
0: I mean, you know, Mariupol is a city of half a million people. Was. Okay, was. But I mean, you know, so its population before the war was half a million.
2: Which is roughly on par with Atlanta.
0: Right. Okay. And there's this,
2: you know, one area, which is
0: probably large. Like, you know, it's a, a huge power plant. So, it, you know, it might be a mile square. I mean, who knows? You don't don't, don't really know. Or half a mile square or something. Um, like, the city has surrendered. But we don't even know what that means that the city is surrendered. Yeah, there's, they're they're starving. It's you know it's a horrible, monstrous, horrible situation, right? But so the city is surrendered. So, you know, congratulations to the Russians because it doesn't end at like I I don't even know what it means that the city is surrendered because then they have to occupy the city. How many troops are they going to have to have to occupy the city? What's going to keep the the, the, the people who are, are there in Mariupol from, from continuing to run sabotage missions against the against the Russians when they take the higher ground in the city and all of that. And as far as I understand, like, there hasn't been no surrender of this city. Right. No one's But I'm saying it. if they if they succeed in overtaking the city, then they have to hold it. That's that's no joke. Like, it's not like ordinarily, you know, if you're on a march through a country, right. You go, you march through, you knock something over, you know, you leave some people behind because you've traumatized the population. You take all their guns, you have the guns and then you march at your Sherman. you go through Georgia, you don't like stop. And then holds it. You go, you march right through. And in this case, I don't think they can march. I mean, they're going to have to like put 20,000 Russians there just to maintain their, their, control of the city and
2: you know it's just- the city of Kherson fell very early on in this campaign and <clears throat> we were treated to images of the people you know protesting and what have you and then in late march it was all of a sudden contested again ukrainian forces didn't reach that city it just suddenly erupted in insurgency to the point where it was no longer under russian control and that's the that remains today the biggest metropolitan area under Russian ostensibly under Russian control. And to my understanding a month later, it remains contested.
0: It's amazing. It's an amazing, it's a totally amazing thing that's going on here. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's heartbreaking and it's awful. And I don't want to like, you know, be a, be, be, be a, you know, purveyor of sunshine in the middle of a, of a horrible humanitarian disaster and tragedy. But, um, like Noah says, I mean, who who would have thought that the Ukrainians would have the Russians waiting two months just to take a single strategic city? One. As you say, important city on the Sea of Azov, and they don't have it yet.
1: The war's I been mean, going my, on for two months. My concern, and this has been my concern the whole time, is what stops this from being a sort of stalemate of attrition?
0: Nothing. Right. But a stalemate of attrition favors the Ukrainians, horrible as that might be. I mean, it's a horrible thing to say because the life that they are that they are going to descend into, you know, we know from we know from sieges of other of past times, including Stalingrad, like this is not something that you want to, you know, you want to be in a you can deal with. Uh, it's 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 nightmarish. But um, if they if they don't. if the country if they don't give up the ghost in some fundamental sense the russians can't win victory requires surrender and then the russians can stop fighting and start swallowing up but if they never have to stop fighting they can't swallow they can't take administrative control they can't take control of the material resources you know if if they're if they're in there cuz they want the precious you know the precious the breadbasket of europe and and whatever minerals are there and all of that they need to have social peace in order to do that including a workforce a ukrainian workforce so you know the the epic disaster that this is for putin i don't think changes a whit it's awful but it's not you know but it's I don't know. It's an interesting lesson in the, you know, in the complexities of war. I guess. So there you have it. This is how we do a show when we have when we don't discuss anything beforehand. Uh, I hope you liked it. <laughs> we'll probably discuss things beforehand more uh, again uh, tomorrow. Uh, but until then, for Abe No and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the camel burning.